Hello and welcome to the January 19th, 2021 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with highlights of what's new in Annals since our last podcast. I'll begin with a collection of papers on the public health implications of alternate strategies for delivery of COVID-19 vaccine in the setting of limited vaccine supply. These articles suggest that a single dose of vaccine, even if less effective than two doses, may have greater population benefit if delivered to a larger proportion of the population than two doses delivered to a smaller proportion of the population. In the first article, researchers used a previously published model of a COVID-19 vaccination program to quantify the speed versus efficacy trade-off of vaccination deployment. The model accounted for transmission of SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 disease severity, and recovery or vaccination leading to protective immunity. According to the author's analyses, a two-dose vaccine strategy would impose steep clinical and epidemiologic costs in the context of the ongoing pandemic response. Depending on the duration of protection conferred, a single-dose vaccine with 55% effectiveness may confer greater population benefit than a 95% effective vaccine requiring two doses. In the second article, researchers developed a decision analytic cohort model to estimate direct benefits of vaccination against COVID-19 under alternate strategies for dose allocation. First, they analyzed a fixed strategy based on the current U.S. model of two doses timed about one month apart. Second, they analyzed a flexible strategy that would reserve 10% of the supply for second doses during the first three weeks, 90% during each of the next three weeks, and 50% thereafter. They estimate that the flexible strategy would result in an additional 23% to 29% of COVID-19 cases averted compared with the fixed strategy. In both scenarios, 24 million people received at least one dose of the vaccine by week eight, whereas 2.4 million additional people received two doses of the vaccine in the flexible strategy because a million more received an initial dose during the first three weeks. According to the researchers, these findings suggest that vaccinating more people as soon as possible using a flexible approach could increase the benefits of vaccines while enabling most recipients to receive second doses on schedule. Third is a commentary that argues that speed is essential for controlling the COVID-19 pandemic and offer four supporting rationale. Doubling the vaccine coverage with a single dose compared with a two-dose regimen will accelerate pandemic control because even lack of complete protection on an individual level is likely to lower transmission rates enough to stop epidemic growth. Providing effective protection for as many people as possible is more ethical because it distributes the scarce commodity more justly. A single-dose vaccine approach could mitigate the higher incidence of many vaccine-associated adverse events seen with the second dose, and administering a vaccine that is only partly protective may reduce risky behaviors. In an accompanying editorial, Dr. Thomas Balicki writes, quote, a single dose regimen of the current vaccines that offers a lower but still substantial level of protection against COVID-19 may alleviate vaccine supply constraints, but may do so at the expense of aggregating the demand and administration constraints that present the greater hurdle to vaccinating vulnerable groups in the U.S. Nasopharyngeal swabs are the primary sampling method used for detection of SARS-CoV-2, but they require a trained healthcare professional and extensive personal protective equipment. Saliva-based sampling for detecting SARS-CoV-2 infection has the potential to address many barriers associated with nasopharyngeal swabs. 
In the next article, authors from McGill University summarize evidence comparing the sensitivities for detection of SARS-CoV-2 infection between nasopharyngeal swabs and saliva samples. They conclude that saliva sampling is a similarly sensitive and less costly alternative that could replace nasopharyngeal swabs for collection of clinical samples for SARS-CoV-2 testing. Next is a commentary by authors from the Cleveland Clinic, Northwestern University, University of London, and the University of Gothenburg that note that as the COVID-19 pandemic persists and demand for personal protective equipment remains high, Healthcare leaders should recognize that increases in supply and demand for personal protective equipment have likely exacerbated the prevalence of forced labor in global PPE supply chains. They hope that the high demand for PPE during the pandemic can help draw attention to society's deep-seated reliance on forced labor. The pandemic creates particular challenges for pregnant women, and some worry that public health measures to mitigate transmission of SARS-CoV-2 may interfere with good prenatal care and lead to unfavorable pregnancy outcomes. To shed light on this issue, researchers from the Karolinska Institute in Sweden studied data from the Swedish Pregnancy Register, which covers 92% of all births in Sweden, to investigate associations between being born during a period when many public health interventions aimed at mitigating the spread of COVID-19 were enforced and the risk for preterm birth and stillbirth. The researchers compared the risk for preterm birth and stillbirth among births from April 1st through May 31st, 2020, a period when Swedish authorities had enforced a range of pandemic mitigation interventions, with births from April through May in the years 2015 to 2019. Reassuringly, they found no association between being born during a period of strong COVID-19 mitigation strategies and preterm birth or stillbirth. Next is an interesting case report from the Imperial College Healthcare Trust and the University of Oxford that describes the first reported case of muscle-specific kinase antibody-associated myasthenia gravis after SARS-CoV-2 infection. Go to annals.org to read about the case. Many see primary care physicians as gatekeepers to reduce low-value healthcare services, which have been estimated to cost the U.S. healthcare system up to $100 billion annually. A report published on January 19th explores how much low-value spending is related to primary care physicians' direct services and their referral decisions. Researchers from the American Board of Family Medicine, Harvard, Mount Sinai, and Stanford analyzed Medicare Part B claims between 2007 and 2014 to estimate the share of Medicare beneficiaries' low-value spending that was directly related to their primary care physicians' services or referrals. Low-value services were identified using a consensus set of 31 services previously judged to be low-value by national physician societies, Medicare criteria, and clinical guidelines. Such services include imaging for nonspecific low back pain, prostate-specific antigen screening for men over the age of 75, and arthroscopic surgery for knee osteoarthritis. The findings showed that primary care physician services and referrals account for a small minority of spending on low-value care. For the majority of primary care physicians, services they performed or ordered accounted for less than 9% of their patients' low-value care spending, which amounted to less than 0.3% of their total Medicare Part B spending. Similarly, for most primary care physicians, their referrals accounted for less than 16% of their patients' low-value spending, which amounted to less than 0.5% of their total Medicare Part B spending. 
In clinical practice, most genetic testing is done in affected persons as a diagnostic tool or in healthy persons at risk for genetic disease based on family history. Much less is known about the predictive value of genetic tests to screen healthy persons without a family history for genetic disease. Also published on January 19th is an article in our Cases in Precision Medicine series. This article uses a hypothetical case to illustrate differences between genetic testing for diagnosis and predictive genetic screening for prevention purposes, focusing on available clinical tests. Healthy patients increasingly inquire about genetic testing as a tool for predicting disease risks such as cancer, heart disease, or dementia. Based on what is currently known about genetic testing as a predictive tool, the authors conclude that a Bayesian framework is useful for assessing future risk of disease and predictive testing in clinical practice should be limited to genes where there's a strong evidence linking mutations to high disease risk. Also published on January 19th is an Annals for Hospitals commentary on the use of corticosteroids in the treatment of hospitalized patients with COVID-19, an Annals Consult Guides episode on venous thrombosis in patients with cancer, and an Annals on Call podcast episode that discusses low-dose steroids and infection risk. That brings us to the end of this podcast. I hope you'll go to annals.org to take a look at some of the new material I've mentioned, earn some CME and MOC credit, and sign up for email alerts so that you'll know about new Annals articles as soon as they become available. Stay well and stay safe, and let's hope that January 20th brings a peaceful transition of U.S. leadership that enables focus on the pandemic, societal inequities, climate change, and other factors that currently threaten health. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.